Chapter One of The Side of the Angels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. The Side of the Angels by Basil King. Chapter One. The difficulty was, in the first place, one of date. Not the date of a month or a year, but of a generation or a century. Had Thorley Masterman found himself in love with Rosie Fay in 1760, or even in 1860, there would have been little to adjust and nothing to gainsay. In 1860 the Fays were still as good as the Thorleys, and almost as good as the Mastermans. Going back as far as 1760, the Fays might have been considered better than the Thorleys, had the village acknowledged standards of comparison, while there were no Mastermans at all. That is, in 1760 the Mastermen still kept their status as yeomen, clergymen, and country doctors among the hills of Derbyshire, untroubled as yet by that spirit of unrest for conscience' sake which had urged the Fays and the Thorleys out of the flat farmers of East Anglia one hundred and thirty years before. During the intervening period the flat farmlands remained only as an equalising symbol. Thorleys, Fays, Willoughbys, and Brands worked for one another with the community of interests developed in a beehive, and intermarried. If from the process of intermarriage the phase were, on the whole, excluded, the discrimination lay in some obscure instinct for affinity, of which no one at the time was able to forecast the significance. But by 1910 there was a difference. The difference apparent when out of the flat farmland's seismic explosion had thrown up a range of mountain peaks. For the expansion of the country which the middle nineteenth century had wrought, the Thorleys, Mastermans, Willoughbys and Brands had been on the alert, with eyes watchful and calculations timed. The Fays, on the other hand, had gone with a round of seed-time and harvest, contented and almost somnolent, awakening to find that the ages had been giving them the chances that would never come again. It was across the wreck of those chances, and across some other obstacles besides, that Thorley Masterman, for the first time since childhood, looked into the grey-green eyes of Rosy Fay, and got the thrill of their wide-open, earnest beauty. He was then not far from thirty years of age, having studied at a great American university, in Paris, Berlin, and Vienna, and obtained other sorts of knowledge of mankind. He knew Rosy Fay, in this secondary grown-up phase of their acquaintance, as the daughter of his first patient, and he had obtained his first patient through the kindly intervention of Uncle Sim. From February to November, 1910, his shingle had hung in one of the two streets of the village without attracting a patient at all. He had already begun to feel his position a trial, when his half-brother's daily jest turned it into a humiliation. "'Must be a serious matter, Thor,' Claude would say, "'to be responsible for so many valuable lives.' Mr. Leonard Willoughby, his father's partner in the old banking-and-broking house of Toogood and Masterman, enjoyed the same sort of chaff. "'Looking pale, Thor. Must be working too hard.' "'Never mind, Thor,' Mrs. Willoughby would encourage him. "'When I'm ill, you shall get me. But then I'm never ill.' At such minutes her daughter Lois could only smile sympathetically and talk hurriedly of something else. As he had meant since boyhood to marry Lois Willoughby, when the moment for marriage came, Thor counted this tactfulness in her favour. 
Nevertheless, he was puzzled. Having disregarded his future possession of money and prepared himself for a useful career with all the thoroughness he could command, nobody seemed to want him. It was not that the village was over-provided with doctors. Everyone admitted that it wasn't. Otherwise he would not have settled in his native place. The village being really a township with a scattered population, except on the Thorley estate, which was practically part of a great New England city where there were rows of suburban streets, it was quite insufficiently served by Dr. Noonan at one end and Dr. Hill at the other, for Uncle Sim in the old village could scarcely be said to count. No, the opening was good enough. The trouble lay, apparently, in Thorley Masterman himself. Making all allowances for the fact that a young physician must wait patiently and win his position by good degrees, he had reason to feel chagrined. He grew ashamed to pass the little house in the old village which he had fitted up as an office. He grew ashamed to go out in his runabout. The runabout had been worse than an extravagance, since, on the ground that it would take him to his patients the more quickly, he had felt justified in borrowing its price. The most useful purpose it served now was to bring Mr. Willoughby home from town when unfit to come by himself. Otherwise its owner hated taking it out of the garage, especially if Claude were in sight. Claude had envied him the runabout at first, but soon found a way to work his feeling off. "'Anybody dying, old chap?' he would ask, with a curl of his handsome lip. "'Hope you'll get to him in time.' It was while in the runabout, however, in the early part of a November afternoon, that the young doctor met his Uncle Sim. "'Hello, Thor,' the latter called. "'Where are you off to? I was looking for you.' Thor brought the machine to a standstill. Uncle Sim threw a long, thin leg over his mare's back and was on the ground. "'Wah, dearia, wah! Good old girl!' He liked to believe that the tall bay was spirited. Standing beside Thor's runabout, he held the reins loosely in his left hand, while the right arm was thrown caressingly over Delia's neck. The outward and visible sign of his eccentricity was his indifference from everyone else. In a community, one might say a country, in which each man did his utmost to look like every other man, the fact that Simeon Masterman was willing to look like no one but himself was sufficient to prove him, in the language of his neighbours, a little off. It was sometimes said that he suggested Don Quixote. He was so tall, so gaunt, and so eager-eyed, and, except that there was no melancholy in his face, perhaps he did. "'Got a job for you.' The old man's voice was nasal and harsh, without being disagreeable. Grown sensitive, Thor was on his guard. "'Not one of your gods that are given away with a pound of tea,' he said suspiciously. "'I don't know about that pound of tea, but it's given away. Giving it away because I can't deal with it myself. Call for someone with more ingenuity, so I've told him about you.' Thor laughed. "'Don't wonder you're willing to give it up, Uncle Sim. "'You'll wonder still less when you've seen the patient.' "'By the way, it's Fay's wife. Remember old Fay, don't you?' The young man nodded. "'Used to be Grandpa Thorley's gardener. Has the greenhouses on father's land, north of the pond. Some sort of row going on between him and father now. What's she got?' "'It's not what she's got, poor woman. It's what she hasn't got. That's what's the matter with her.' "'I'm afraid it's a variety of symptom I never heard of.' "'No, but you'll hear of it soon.' "'Whoa, Delia, steady, good girl. "'If you can treat it, you'll be the most distinguished specialist in the country. 
Well, Delia, I'm giving you the chance to begin. Thor wondered what was at the back of the old fellow's mind. There was generally something in what he had to say, if you could think it out. Since you've diagnosed the case, Uncle Sim, he began craftily, can't I give you a tip for the treatment? No, I can't, and it wouldn't do any good if I did, because she won't take my medicine. Perhaps I could make her. The old man laughed harshly. You? That's good. Why, you'd be the first to make game of it yourself. He had his left foot in the stirrup and his right leg over Dida's back before Thor could formulate another question. As, with head thrown back, he continued his amused chuckling, there was about him, in spite of his sixty years, a something irresponsible and debonair that would have pleased Franz Howells or Simon de Vos. Within ten minutes Thor was knocking at the door of a small house with a mansard roof, situated in what had once been the apple orchard of a farm. All but a sparse half-dozen of the trees had given place to lines of hothouses, through the glass of which he could see oblongs of vivid green. He was so preoccupied with the fact of paying his first visit to his first patient, as scarcely to notice that the girl who opened the door was pretty. He almost ignored her. "'How do you do, Miss Fay? I'm Dr. Thorley Masterman. I believe your mother would like to see me. May I go to her at once?' He was in the narrow hallway and at the foot of the stairs when she said, "'You can go right up, but perhaps I ought to tell you that she's not—well, she's not very sick.' He looked at her inquiringly, getting the first faint impression of her beauty. Uh, "'What's the matter, then?' "'That's what we don't know.' After a second's hesitation she added, "'Perhaps it's melancholy.' Another second passed before she said, "'We've had a good deal of trouble.' The tone touched him. Her way of holding her head, rather meekly, rather proudly, sufficiently averted to give him the curve of the cheek, touched him too. "'What kind of trouble?' "'Oh, every kind. But she'll tell you about it herself. It's all she'll talk about. That's why we can't do anything for her. And I don't believe you can. I'd better see.' Following her directions given from the foot of the stairs, he entered a barely furnished bedroom of which two sides lead inward to correspond to the mansard grading of the roof. One window looked out on the greenhouses, another towards Thorley's pond. Beside the former, in a high upholstered armchair, sat a tall woman, fully dressed in black, with a patchwork quilt of many colours across her knees. In spite of grey hair slightly dishevelled and wild grey eyes, she was a handsome woman, who on a larger scale made him think of the girl downstairs. "'How do you do, Mrs. Fay?' he began, feeling the burden of the situation to be on himself. "'I'm Dr. Thor—' "'I know who you are,' the woman said ungraciously. "'If you hadn't been a masterman, I shouldn't have sent for you.' He took a small chair, drawing it up beside her. "'I know you've been treated by my Uncle Sim. "'He's a fool. "'Tries to heal a broken heart by feeding it on rainbows.' Thor smiled. That's like him, and yet rainbows have been known to heal a broken heart before now. They won't heal mine. What I want is down on the solid earth. There was a kind of desperate pleading in her face as she added, Why can't I have it? That depends on what it is. If it's health, it's better than health. He smiled. I've always heard that health is pretty good as things go. It's good enough. But there's something better, and that's patience. If you've got patience, you can do without health. 
I don't think you're much in need of a doctor, Mrs. Fay, he laughed. I am, she declared savagely. I am, because I ain't got either of them, and if I had, I'd give them both for something else. She held him with her wild grey eyes as she said, I'd give them both for money. Money's better than patience and better than health. If I had money, I shouldn't care how sick I was or how unhappy. If I had money, my son wouldn't be in jail. Though startled, he knew that, like a confessor, he must show no sign of surprise. He remembered now that there had been a boy in the Fay family, two or three years younger than himself. "'I didn't know,' he began sympathetically. "'You didn't know, because we're not even talked about. If your brother was in jail for stealing money, it's the first thing the town would tattle of. But you've been back from your travels for a year or more, and you ain't even heard that our Matt is doing three years at Colcord.' "'But you'd rather people didn't hear it, wouldn't you?' "'I'd rather that they'd care whether I'm alive or dead,' she said fiercely. "'I've lived all my life in this village, and my ancestors before me. Faith's family has done the same. But we're pushed aside and forgotten. It's as much as ever if someone will tell you that Jasper Fay raises lettuce in the winter, and cucumbers in spring, and a few flowers all the year round, and can't pay his rent. I don't believe you've heard that much, have you?' He dodged the subject by asking the usual professional questions and giving some elementary professional advice. "'I'm afraid, Mrs. Fay, you're taking a discouraged view of life,' he went on, by way of doing his duty. She sat still more erect in her armchair, her eyes flashing. "'If you'd seen yourself driven to the wall for more than thirty years, and if when you got to the wall you were crushed against it, and crushed again, wouldn't you take a discouraged view of life?' I've lived on bread and water, or pretty near it, ever since I was married. And what's come of it? We're worse off than we ever were. Fay's put everything he could scrape together into this bit of land, and now your father is shilly-shallying again about renewing the lease. Oh, so that's it. That's it, but it's only some of it. Look out there. All Fay's sweat and blood and all of mine is in those greenhouses and that ground. It's everything we've got to live on, and God knows what kind of a living it is. "'Your father has never given us more than a three years' lease, "'and every three years he's raised the rent on us. "'He's had us in his power from the first. "'Oh, he's crafty, getting us to rent the land from him instead of buying it, "'and Fay that soft that he believed him to be his friend. "'He's had us in his power from the first, and he's never spared us. "'No wonder he's rich. "'And you're coming in for that Thorley money, too. "'I know what your grandfather Thorley's will was. "'Going to get it when you're thirty. "'Must be pretty nigh on that now, ain't you?' To humour her, Thor named the date in the following February, when he should reach the age fixed by his grandfather for entering on the inheritance. "'What did I tell you? I remember your grandfather as plain as plain. Big, hard-faced man he was, something like you. My folks could remember him when he hawked garden trucks to back doors in the city. Nothing but a farmer's son he was, just like the rest of us, and he died rich. Only difference between the Thorleys and the Fays was that the Thorleys held on to their land and the Fays didn't.' "'Neither did my folks, the Grimeses. "'If we'd been crafty and hadn't sold till the city was creeping down our chimneys, "'like the Thorleys and the Brands, we should be as rich as them. "'Cut your father out of his will, good and hard, your grandfather did, "'and now it's all come to you. "'Why, there was a time when the Thorleys hired out to my folks, "'and so did the Willoughbys. "'And now—' "'She threw the quilt from off her knees and spread her hands outward. "'Oh, I'm sick of it!' I've spent my life watching everyone else go up and me and mine go down, and I'm sick of it. I'm not sick any other way. No, I don't think you are, he said gently. Well, that's bad enough, isn't it? If I had a fever or a cold, you would give me something to take it away. 
"'What can you do for the state of mind I'm in?' He answered slowly, "'I can't do much just yet, though I can do a little, but uh, by and by, perhaps, when I know more exactly what the trouble is.' "'You can't know it better than I can tell you now. It's just this. That's I've all I can do to keep from stealing down to Thorley's Pond, when no one's looking, and throwing myself in. What do you think of that?' "'I think you won't do it,' he smiled. "'But I wouldn't play with the idea if I were you.' "'Look here!' she cried, seizing him by the arm and pulling him out of his chair. "'Look out of that window!' He followed the pointing of her finger to a high bluff covered with oaks, to which the withered brown foliage still clung, though other trees were bare. "'That's Duck Rock. Well, there's a spot there where the water's thirty foot deep. What do you think of that?' He moved back from the window, but remained standing. I think that it doesn't matter to you and me whether it's thirty foot deep, or sixty, or a hundred. It matters to me. In thirty foot of water I'd go down like a stone, and then it'd be all over. After that, nothing but sleep. Her eyes held him again. You don't believe there'll be anything after it but sleep, do you? He dodged that question, too. But uh, you do. I was brought up an orthodox congregational, but what's the good? All I've ever got out of it was rainbows, and what I've wanted is solid. I've wanted to do something, and be something, and have something, and not be pushed back and trampled out of sight by people who used to hire out to my folks and can treat me like dirt today just because they've got the money. Why haven't I got it, too? I'm fit for it. I had good schooling. Louisa Thorley, your own mother, that is, and me went to school together. Your father ran away with her, and she died when you were born. We went to school to old Mrs. Brand, aunt to Bessie Brand, that's now Bessie Willoughby, and holds her head so high. Poor as church mice they was in those days. But then everyone was poor. We was all poor together, and happy. And I was some are poor, and some are rich, and there's upper classes and lower classes, and everything's got uneven, and I'm sick of it. To calm her excitement, he talked to her with the inspiration of young earnestness, getting his reward in an attention accorded perhaps for the very reason that the earnestness was young. "'I think I must run off now,' he finished, when he thought her slightly comforted. "'But I'll send you something I want you to take at once. You'll take a tablespoonful and half a glass of water.' The rebellious spirit revived, though less bitterly. "'And it'll do me as much good as a dose of your uncle's rainbows. What I want is what I shall never get. Or sleep.' "'Well, you'll get sleep.' he said, smiling and holding out his hand. "'You'll sleep to-night, and I'll come again to-morrow.' He was at the door when she called out, "'Do you know what our Matt got his three years for?' "'It was for stealing money from Massey's grocery store, where he was bookkeeper. "'And do you know what made him steal it? "'It was to help us pay the rent the last time your father raised it. "'I'll bet he's done worse than that twenty times a year, "'but he's driving round in automobiles, while my poor boy's in Colcord.' End of chapter 1